delightful and really encouraging. And uh, I hope that you'll get a chance to read it and be blessed by it. But let me just quickly recap then what happened in this story. We see a young family, Naomi, uh, Elimelech, and their two sons, Malan and Killian. They are in the midst of a severe drought and famine in Bethlehem, and they think, well, you know what we're going to do? Hi, Alec. Nice to see you here, all the way from Texas. Sorry about that. Squirrel. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Texas. So they, leave all, they left Texas and went to, uh, they left Bethlehem and went to the place called Moab. Moab is not Israel, obviously. Moab is a place that uh, would have had other gods other than the God of Israel. And while they're there, tragedy strikes the family. Elimelech dies, Killian dies, Malan dies, and Naomi is left with just her daughters-in-law. She says to her daughters-in-law, look, there's no point in you coming back with me to Bethlehem. There's no point in me staying here in Moab. I'm going, I'm going home. And the daughters-in-law say, yeah, okay, we'll go. But then along the way, you know, the daughter-in-law, uh, Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, says, uh, you know what, I'm going to go home. I'm just going to go back to my parents. And Ruth makes this huge declaration. She makes a decision. She says, wherever you go, Naomi, I'm going to go. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. And she makes that decision really to seek first the kingdom of God. This is Matthew 6, 33. It's become my life verse. I learned it when I was a young Christian, and really it was one of the first scripture verses that I learned. And it basically goes like this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. What are these things? All the things that you need. God will give you the, your, the provision that you need to help you get through this life. But what's, what's Jesus saying here in Matthew 6.33? He's saying, don't trust in yourself and don't trust in your own ability and don't trust in your own wisdom and don't trust in your own capabilities to meet your needs, but trust in me. Put me first. Seek me first is what Jesus is saying. And then I will make sure that everything you need is taken care of. And basically, that's what Ruth did. Ruth was in a position, I'm telling you, where they were desperate. They were in desperate trouble. They had nothing. And uh, they're going back to, to Bethlehem, really empty-handed. When they get back, the women there in Bethlehem, they say, hey, look, it's Naomi. And Naomi says, don't call me that. It's her name, Naomi. But she said, don't call me that because Naomi means pleasant. No, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. I feel that God has treated me bitterly. My life is a ruin. My life is in a terrible place. Now, some of you sitting here today may be in that very place where you're going through a difficult time, you've been through a struggle, you're in the middle of a struggle, in fact, you're wondering, does God even answer prayer? Does God care about me? Some of you here, your, your faith is tested. Some of you are, are, are wavering. You're, just, you're not sure whether, you're, whether you know, it's, it's even worth pursuing. Should, should I continue on with my faith? Should I continue on trusting God? 
That's kind of where Ruth was. And so they arrived back there, and how were they going to support themselves? Well, here's the thing. And again, it's probably the reason why Naomi wanted to return to Bethlehem. According to Jewish law, and we see it, we saw it, see it spelled out for us in the book of Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, God has got very special rules for those who are poor and needy, uh, rules to care for them, that is. And what God has commanded Israel to do is those who've got land, those who are farmers, when they, when they take in the harvest, they're instructed to make sure they don't pick up the, 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 the wheat or the barley or whatever is at their harvest, not to pick up the, the stuff that falls to the ground. Just leave it, God commands. And don't, don't, don't harvest the corners of your land. Just leave that. It's supposed to be left for poor people, for people who don't have the means to have their own land and to farm their own land. God wants to take care of the poor. And so in the commandments, God commands that farmers should leave the corners of their fields unharvested and they should not attempt to pick up that which was dropped or, or harvest any leftovers that had been forgotten when they have harvested the majority of their field. That's Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9, and it's through, uh, uh, you find in other chapters in the scripture. God cares for the poor and the needy. Now, here's, here's Ruth back in a foreign land. She doesn't know anybody there except her mother-in-law. And now Naomi says to her, well, Naomi, Ruth, you're going to have to go out, and you're going to have to bring in some food for us. And so we find Ruth going into the fields and picking up the bits and pieces that have fallen on the ground. Now, I wonder what's going through her mind. I think I could probably guess. I think probably most of us here today could guess what's going through her mind. Can't you just see her stoop down, doing this back-breaking labor, tears streaming down her cheeks, and she's muttering, oh God, where are you, and, and who are you, and God, have you forgotten about me, and God, do you still love me? Have you ever thought that, or ever wondered that? God, my life's a struggle right now. Where are you? They said that when I would commit my life to you, that you would never forget about me, that my needs would be met. But God, frankly, it feels like I've been deserted. Anybody feel like that? Ruth did. Alone and knowing that, really, the only thing that stood between her and Naomi and starvation was the work that she would do in those fields. And so she persevered, and she went on. Serving her mother-in-law, humbly serving her mother-in-law, caring for her mother-in-law. You see, she didn't have to be there. She could have stayed in her homeland. She could have gone back to her father's house where her father would have cared for her as a widow. But here she is, humbly serving her mother-in-law. Now, I want to share with you this morning one of the best-kept secrets in this life. Most of you will know it when I tell you, but for most of us, we forget this. But it's one of the best-kept secrets, and here it is. The power of humility to radically improve your life. That's the secret. When you walk and live in humility, folks, it has the power to radically improve your life. The question is this. Are you willing to live a humble life. Now, for most of us, you know, we, we kind of know what that means, but we don't really know it 
it means. And that's why it's so important for us to read the Scripture, because I believe that the book of Ruth is included in the canon of Scripture to help you and I understand what it means to follow God and to walk after him. And so we see in Ruth, first of all, a woman who walks in humility. Psychologist Pilan Kesseber writes in his uh, amazing, amazing study on humility. Yes, a study on humility. He writes, society celebrates overconfidence, entitlement, that is, I'm entitled to whatever I want, and perpetual focus on the self. Now, this is, I, I don't know if this man's a Christian or not, but this is his observation. This is, this is what's come out of his study. And incidentally, this is something that all of us can relate to. Now, he's saying this is what our society holds as important. It celebrates overconfidence, it celebrates entitlement, and it celebrates a perpetual focus on the self. This is why the reality programs that we're seeing on TV right now are so successful. Networks used to spend millions upon millions and millions and millions of dollars on, on what we used to call sitcoms. But sitcoms are not so popular anymore. First of all, they're very expensive. But secondly, they've discovered that this reality TV actually is more appealing to us. And the reason it's more appealing to us is because if you look at the common denominator in all these programs, it's exactly what Peel and Kessler is telling us. Perpetual focus on self, entitlement, and overconfidence. So what are some of these reality programs that have really made it big? Has anybody ever heard of Big Brother? Entitlement, overconfidence, perpetual focus on self. The Bachelor? The Bachelorette? Has anybody ever heard of the Kardashians? Keeping up with the Kardashians. The next top model, a perpetual focus on self, entitlement, overconfidence, American Idol, here comes Honey Boo Boo, Chop, which I must confess I enjoy watching, Hell's Kitchen, there's no Heaven's Kitchen, <laughs> oh, there is at my house, Gloria's a wonderful cook. Dance Moms. Anybody ever heard of Dance Moms? And then how about The Apprentice? And I could list many, many more. Now, all of these are highly successful programs. Why? Because you and I can relate to it. It strikes a chord with us. Because at the very core of who we are is a self-centeredness. Peeling Kessiber says people are increasingly competitive, attention-seeking, narcissistic, obsessed with their appearance, and being entitled. I just saw an interesting article about a guy, uh, actually two guys, that have had plastic surgery to make themselves look more like a Ken doll. If you don't know what a Ken doll is, I've got to reference it with a Barbie doll. Has anybody ever heard of a Barbie doll? So these guys have got plastic surgeries. They've had implants here. It's not just women that get them. These guys have got implants in their chest, in their butt, their, th their arms. This guy spent uh, uh, over $100,000 on plastic surgery on his face, on his lips, to make himself look more like a Ken doll. 
And it's not just the guys. There's, there's a girl that actually has had, she's had her waist surgically worked on so that it's a Barbie doll waist. It's a Barbie doll face. They all look extremely creepy. But their whole life is devoted to this narcissistic self-centeredness. Now, all of us could look at them and we could shake our heads and click our tongue and that sort of thing and say, oh, aren't they disgusting? But the fact of the matter is, folks, is that what they're doing is just an extreme of what's in all of us. Now, that might come as a shock to you because you did not intend to come to church and get insulted. I'm not trying to do that. What I'm trying to do, however, is I'm trying to help us understand our tendency. So we see in Ruth quite the opposite to what we've just been talking about. She's not narcissistic. She's not obsessed with herself. She's not attention-seeking or, or entitled. If you've read, this, if you've read the, the book of Ruth, you know that that's the truth. There's no overconfidence, and there's certainly no perpetual focus on self. What do we see in her? We see in her a desire to serve her mother-in-law, to humbly serve. This is her heartbeat. This is her desire. That's all she wants to do. So here's, here's what happens. Her mother-in-law says, go out and do some gleaning. Thank God that God has put that, that provision in the law so that there will be food for us. So here's the thing. Ruth leaves her house, and she picks a farmer's field and asks permission to glean. Now, in case you don't know what gleaning is, that's basically going through the field and picking up the bits and pieces that the harvesters have left behind. So she goes gleaning. That's what that picture is, by the way, that hand holding wheat, in case you're wondering. That's Ruth's hand. Uh, We actually took a picture of Ruth's hand. (laughs) (laughs) Holding wheat that, that she's gleaned. She is, she is really the epitome of humility because here she is going to this farmer's field in front of everybody that's there and she's declaring to them her poverty. She's got nothing. In essence, what she's doing is she's, she's begging for food. She's, she's putting her hand out and saying, help, I need help. Now, if you've ever been in a position where you've had nothing you know what I'm talking about. I want to talk about how humiliating it is to ask for help. And here's Ruth, really, truly humbled in a position where she needs to be asking for help. She's not too, proved, not too proud to serve her mother-in-law, not too proud to ask. She's not too proud to do whatever it takes. And I'm going to tell you this. It's difficult work, too. She doesn't have the tools that everybody else has. She's, it's, everything's by hand. She's got to claw this by hand. There's, there's no rakes. There's no special tools. Humbly, she digs in, gets her hands dirty, mud under her nails, mud on her face, looking like a wreck. No, no place for pride here, folks. And to make matters worse, Because she was poor, because she is needy, she's seen as something of the scum of society. Let's face it. That's what our, that's the sort of the, the dirty underside of our culture, our society. So we look down at people who are poor and needy. And uh, there was the risk of her being treated badly and being harassed. She's warned in Ruth chapter 2, uh, verses 9 and 22. 
to watch out, be careful. You could be harassed, could be bothered, could be treated badly. But she goes and does what she needs to do to provide for her mother-in-law. Now, I want you to recognize something here. Her humility, her willingness to serve, her willingness to care for her mother-in-law, her willingness to do whatever it takes to care for poor Naomi, who has nothing, sets in motions sets in motion the very power of heaven. I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5b to 7. I don't know if it's up on the screen or not. No? Let me read it to you. If you have your Bible, take it and turn there, please. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5b to 7. And it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he'll lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. I want the Spirit of God to speak to your heart today, because here's what I know. I know that for many of us here today, we're going through a very difficult time. We've got our own personal, private struggles and heartaches. And the temptation is to take life into your own hands, to take matters into your own hands. I'm going to solve this problem on my own. God seems to have forsaken me, so i gotta, I got to take care of myself since God isn't taking care of myself. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, so humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Here's what I want you to know today before I go any further is that God really cares about you. He knows your situation and he loves you. He cares about you. He knows your struggles. He knows your pain. He knows your heartache. He knows the difficulty you're going through. He knows the questions that you have in mind. He knows the doubts that you may be having. He knows all about your physical condition. He knows about these things, folks. And the Bible says that he cares about you. But you're going to have to learn to do is to put your troubles, your cares, your concerns upon him. You're going to have to learn what it means to leave those things with him. Because here's what I know from personal experience. The temptation is to try to fix my problems on my own. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The the temptation is I'm going to solve the problem. I'm going to deal with this difficult person in my life. I'm going to fix my wife. I'm going to fix my husband. I'm going to teach my kids a lesson. I'm going to fix my boss. The next thing you know, we find ourselves gossiping about the people we love. We find ourselves trying to get even with the people we love. We find ourselves trying to sabotage other people's lives. We find ourselves not trusting God with our finances, with our job. We find ourselves resorting to things, anything other than the help of God. I want to read to you Ruth chapter 2, verses 5 to 12. It's so revealing. It's so exciting. If you've got your Bible, look at it, please. So Ruth is out in the field, and she's harvesting. 
And then Boaz asked his foreman, who is that young woman over there who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, she's the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She had been uh, hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. And, and, and Boaz went over and said to her, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other field. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting, and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. When you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Now listen to this. The humble Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I'm only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz said, but I also know about everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. And listen to the blessing that Boaz pronounces upon the humble Ruth. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. There's a bit of the New Testament in the Old Testament. Boaz recognizes that God's blessing always follows those who humbly serve, who put other people first. Now, here's the tendency in every one of us. The tendency in every one of us is to put ourselves first. Our tendency is to look out for number one. And who's number one? Me. Not you, me. That's our tendency. Now, Jesus tells us clearly in the Scripture that to be a follower of him is that we become a humble servant. That's why Jesus says in, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, the Son of Man did not come to be, to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's who Jesus is. Now, I want to remind everybody of something here today. What God wants for you is not that you be rich. God, what God wants for you is not that you have whatever you want. What God wants for you, first and foremost, is that you become like his son Jesus. That's what God wants for your life. That's what the Christian message is all about. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, is that you become like him. And Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life. We're talking about being humble, humbly walking before God and others. Now, remember what I said when we first began. We said that it's the biggest and best-kept secret, the power of humility to radically improve your life. And most of us think that the way that we're going to radically improve our life is by building up a huge bank account, by having all the toys we want, by, able, be, by being able to buy whatever we want and do whatever we want. But the Bible tells us that there's quite a different way to live here. And it's by living a life of utter humility, of putting other people first. The Apostle Paul, when he's trying to explain this to the Christians in the city of Philippi, he says this in his letter in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 9. He says, don't be selfish. Now, why do you think he's going to tell the Christians in Philippi not to be selfish? 
Because it's our tendency. It's what we do. We're good at it. So he says, don't be that way. Don't try to impress others, the Apostle Paul says. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Wow. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. That, my friends, is what Christianity is about. It's not about me. Would you say that with me? It's not about me. Say it. It's not. Well, that was hard to say, wasn't it? (laughs) It's not about me. Paul says, here's what you must do. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. So here's the attitude of Jesus Christ, which is the attitude that you and I are called to have. Ready for this? Listen to this. Though Jesus was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. In other words, Jesus was willing to give up his rights. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humbled position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, now listen to this. Here's what happens, folks, when you and I are committed to living the humble life. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor. This is why Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first. If you want to advance in this life, if you want to have a great marriage, if you want to have a great family, if you want to have a a great job, and if you want to advance in your job, if you want to advance in your marriage and have a better marriage than anybody else, then it's going to come from a willingness to serve. So Gloria and I have been married for 25 years, and we're still trying to outdo each other. In serving one another. That's, that's, that's sort of what we're about. We try, and this is true. We, 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 25 years of trying to outdo each other in serving one another. And I don't know right now who's winning, if Gloria's winning or if I am. I think she's winning, but she would probably say that I'm winning. Would you? Yeah, she would. I think she would. <laughs> she's sitting in there in the dark. You can't see expressions on her face. There's a reason she's sitting there. This is what God's called us to. Look, look, if you're struggling in your marriage or if you're struggling in your relationship to your kids, I can pretty much guarantee that at some point there's been a breakdown in your willingness to serve your family, serve your kids and serve your spouse and put them first. I still serve my kids. There's chores that they have to do, but man, if they're busy, they've got classes to do, they're working late, whatever, then I jump in and do their chores for them. And I don't, I don't sort of you know, do a little, little dance when they get home and say, I did your chores today. I'm teaching them how to serve. And guess what? It's so thrilling. It's so exciting now to see them now in turn serving us. And so for this reason, we have a family that's harmonious. We all love each other. We all get along with each other. And we like to be together. Now, if you want that kind of a family life, if you want that kind of a marriage, if you want to enjoy going to work every day, then you're going to have to change your attitude and start walking in humility the way that Ruth did. And it will radically change how people perceive you. Because here's the thing. If you're going to work every day and it's all about you, It's all all about your overconfidence. 
As the psychologist Palin said, if it's all about entitlement and perpetual focus on yourself, I can tell you quite frankly you're going to be hated. People will not like you. They will not want to be in your presence. They will not want to work with you. They will not want to work for you. We're called to walk in humility. Now, here's the thing that happens when you and I learn to walk in humility. The Bible tells us that we receive grace. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. It's impossible to know God or to have a relationship with him if you are proud and self-centered. A proud person is always looking down on things and looking down on people. And C.S. Lewis cleverly says, and of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above. Not good? As long as you're looking down on people, man, you can't see what's above. And it's God himself. Psychologist Pilan Kessiber, in his study on humility, gives eight proven benefits of humility. And uh, he says, humility involves a willingness to, A, accept the limits of self. In other words, contrary to what our popular culture tells us, you are not God, and you're not equal to God. But those who are arrogant and self-centered and proud think of themselves as pretty high and mighty. So it's a willingness to accept the limits of self and its place in the grand scheme of things. And B is accompanied by low levels of self-preoccupation. The opposite of narcissism, isn't it? Narcissism, in case you don't know, is self-love. You know the, the mythology behind that? The narcissist is, who caught a glimpse of his reflection in, in a pond or in a pool, and he was so in love with the reflection of himself, he could not tear himself away from the pond, basically looking in the mirror. He just could not tear himself away because he looked so beautiful to himself. That's what narcissism is. But those who walk in humility are not limited or hampered by that. Now, let's take a quick look at what these, these eight benefits of humility are. First of all, he talks about a, a soul that is soothed, S-O-O-T-H-E-D. He says these people have more peace because they're not worried about losing out to self. They're not worried about self losing out. People who are constantly focused on themselves, they're afraid they're going to miss out and that somehow they're, they're not going to get what's, what's coming to them, the entitlement. And, he says, they're better able to cope with the anxiety about their mortality, that is, about their death. Interesting. Secondly, people who are humble are the best leaders. Everybody loves to follow a humble leader. Nobody wants to follow an arrogant leader. I think that's, I don't need to explain that. I think you get that. Thirdly, people who are humble have a higher level of self-control. Because of, the less, because of the less importance on the self, they exhibit higher uh, self-control in most situations. Oddly, perhaps studies have found that uh, an obsession with the self can paradoxically lead to lower self-control. So if you're constantly focused on your, on, focusing on yourself, what you're doing is you're saying, I got to have, I got to get. 
And so there's a tendency to drink more, there's a tendency to eat more, there's a tendency to get whatever it is that you want. One of the things that I've seen over the years, and I've, I've had this um, confirmed so many times by people who struggled with alcohol and addiction, and it's that those who struggle like that have an extremely high level of self-centeredness and a lack of self-control. Why? Because at some point along the life, along, through, some point through life, they have to take control of themselves because of maybe some abuse, some struggle, I don't know what. And they found that they needed to start looking out for number one. Now, here's the thing. When you are converted, when you become a Christian, you say, God, I'm going to stop being in control of my life, and I'm going to give you control of my life. And at that moment where you say, God, I'm going to humbly surrender my life to you, that is the turning point. When things start to come under control and you begin to have or exhibit self-control. Those who are humble have better work performance. They're the ones that always get raises. Humble people, interestingly, if you're in high school, here's the benefit. In a study of 55 students, they found that those who were more humble did better academically. They're more helpful, less prejudiced, and not surprisingly, they have the best relationships. Now, God promises us his grace when we walk in humility. And I know some of you are sitting there scratching your head and said, so what? What's grace? I don't even know what grace is. Well, let me explain it to you really quickly. Uh, But let me preface it with this. When I was a graduate from Bible school, been through Bible school, got my diploma, and I was studying in the book of Peter, 1 Peter, and it says in the book of Peter, make sure that you grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thought to myself, well, I'm doing good in the grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But growing in grace, I, I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't even know what grace was, really. I kind of did. I, I know the definition. Because if you talk about grace and you ask most people, what does grace mean? They'll say, well, it's God's unmerited favor. Or God's undeserved love for me. But I'm going to tell you this, grace is so much more. It's God's provision. It's God's supernatural guidance in your life. It's the power of God at work on your behalf. Now, here's, here's something interesting. Naomi says, Ruth, I want you to go, and I want you to, to go do some gleaning. Now, listen to this. In Ruth chapter 2, verse 3, it says, So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters, and listen for it, and as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Now, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert here. So if you don't want to know what's going to happen next week, plug your ears right now. But if you don't mind hearing about it, here it goes. It says, as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz. Coincidentally, by chance, she found herself working in the field of a relative, Boaz. Chapter 3 and 4, we see the development of a relationship between Boaz and Ruth so that eventually Boaz marries Ruth. 
But here in chapter 2, there, there's no knowledge of this. There's no understanding of this. There's no promise of this. But we, we see what seems to be a coincidence. Now, here's what you and I need to understand. When you and I put our faith in God and begin to trust him, when you and I make up our minds that we're going to humbly follow the Lord Jesus Christ, God extends his grace to us in ways that you and I cannot begin to imagine. And this is what happens here. How many know today that Ruth didn't coincidentally or by chance end up on Boaz's field? She experienced grace at work. The supernatural grace of God leading her and guiding her to the place where God wanted her to be. There is no coincidence, there is no chance, and it's not as it happened. Let the Spirit of God speak to you now because here's what I know. Some of you right here today, right now, have been praying and you've been asking God to intervene and to help you and you, quite frankly, don't know if God's hearing your prayers or if, it, if, if God's going to, is God doing anything behind the scenes? And I'm here to tell you that God is. He's behind the scenes doing things that you don't know anything about. He's working on your behalf in ways you don't know anything about. He has not forgotten about you. He's not forgotten about the kids that you've been praying for. He's not forgotten about you and the job that you're in. He's not forgotten about your financial situation. There is no coincidence. God's working behind the scenes in Ruth's behalf in ways she knows nothing about. And when she ends up on that field, she discovers the kindness of a man she does not know, Boaz. And Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. Humbly, humbly fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done, she says. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asks. Because I'm only just a foreigner. And he says, I know what you've done. I know how you humbly left it all behind to serve your mother-in-law. May you experience the grace of God in your life. And her humble and grateful response is, I hope I continue to please you, sir. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I'm not one of your workers. Now, Boaz is so deeply moved by this. He gives instructions to all his employees regarding Ruth. And he says, Ruth, you got to eat with us every day. You can't eat on your own anymore. And furthermore, Ruth, I invite you to harvest not just leftovers, not just gleanings, but I, I invite you to harvest among the very best of my crop, among my very workers. And it gets better. Boaz instructs the workers to purposely drop barley on the ground for her. He says, just do it. But she's not looking. So as not to humiliate her further. And so there she is harvesting barley that has been purposely put there for her. And Boaz further instructs them to treat her well. To treat her with dignity and with respect. And it goes on. Boaz tells Ruth, Ruth, you come back 
until the harvest is done, you just keep coming back. I just want to keep blessing you. I just want to keep taking care of you. Folks, this is God's grace at work. And what God did for Ruth because of her humility, God will do the same thing for you. When you and I learn what it means to live the humble life, which means not putting self first, but putting others first, putting God first. I can pretty much guarantee that if you're struggling in your marriage and your family at work, there's a good chance that maybe you're just a little too self-centered. Or maybe both of you are. Or maybe all of you are. Have you ever been to a, gone to a business where everybody's self-centered and fighting, looking out for number one? It's a horrible place to be. But a place where everybody respects each other and treats each other with dignity, man, it's, it's fun to hang out with those people. One of the things that I discovered in reading about successful football teams is that there is a real spirit of preference for one another, putting others first. They're the ones, they're the winning teams. And I think maybe the Blue Bombers and the Winnipeg Jets could maybe listen to my sermon and if anybody, <laughs> anybody has any connections, get that in there. What is it you're struggling with? What is it that you've been praying for and not getting answers the way you expected to get an answer? What is, what is the struggle or the problem in your life right now? Here's what, what I want to plead with you to do. I want you to go from this place with a willingness to submit to the instruction of the Lord God. It says here that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and at the right time he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God for he cares about you. And I just want to close with this because some people, here's what I know. I know this is, this is wacky Pentecostalism or wacky charismatic thinking. Listen, you'll hear people say, well, the devil's really getting the victory in my life. If the devil's getting a victory in your life, it's only because you've given it to him. The, the devil has no authority and no power over you except what you give him. So here's what real spiritual warfare is. Is that you give the old devil a kick in the teeth by saying, I'm not going to live the way you want me to live. I'm going to live the way Jesus wants me to live. And how does Jesus want you to live? He wants you to live in humility, walking in humility. Because what you need to be afraid of is not the devil or not the world and not people. What you need to be afraid of is God. If God opposes you, you're in big trouble. If the devil opposes you, well, you can expect that. But if God opposes you, then you're in trouble. What you want is the help of God, the power of God. You want the grace of God to enable you and to empower you to live the life that he wants you to have. And it's a life that's full of blessing. But it only comes when you and I learn what it means to walk humbly with one another, putting other people first. Who do you need to put first today? Who do you need to apologize for being proud and arrogant to? Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your spouse. 
When you go to work on Monday, go to Tim Hortons and pick up 12 donuts or muffins or bagels or whatever. Bring it to work. Bless the people you work with. Show them that you care. Bless the people around you by serving them, by showing them that you're not the center of the universe and you don't think you're the center of the universe. Folks, there can only be one center of the universe and it's not you. It's our God. Would you stand with me, please? Father, we want to say thank you right now for your power at work. And God, thank you for what you want to do in our hearts and lives. God, you do want us to know your blessing. You do want us to know your provision. You do want us to know your supernatural guidance. God, we know that when Ruth ended up on the field of Boaz, that wasn't a coincidence. That was divine guidance. But she received that divine guidance because of her humility and her willingness to serve. God, we pray today that each of us would begin to experience miracles unfolding in our lives as we learn what it means to serve and to put others first. And God, may it begin with our spouse, may it begin with our children, may it begin at our workplace. But God, we pray that those who know we're followers of Jesus Christ would actually see the spirit of Jesus Christ at work in us. Jesus, the humble Jesus, the one who is obedient to the Father. God, grant us that kind of power and strength. Grant us that kind of grace. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me? Tell the person beside you, go walk in humility.